Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hello, future minority doctors. Thank you so much for being part of our growing community and for all the support and love we are getting. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to all of our supporters and followers. I know if you're listening today, perhaps you're a pre-med or high school student wanting to become a surgeon. Today, I have the great pleasure of having an amazing surgeon and a friend who is doing wonderful things for international health. Juliette Siena Lumanti is a clinical fellow in complex surgical oncology with an interest in hepatobiliary surgery at John Hopkins University. She's a board-certified general surgeon. She completed her medical school training at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine in the Program for Medical Education, Health Equity, and Master's in Public Health and Health Policy and Management at Harvard. She completed her general surgery, surgery residencies at the University of California, San Francisco, and the University of Alabama. She is a current alumnus of the UC Glocal Fogarty Fellowship of UCGHI and spent her research fellowship in Ghana evaluating the impact of the National Health Insurance Scheme on out-of-pocket payments for surgical care. Her interest in health policy stems from an early experience working as a congressional staffer in the office of U.S. Senator Tom Harkin in 2009. Over the last decade, she has been involved in global health efforts in SSA and more recently in Ghana. She is a commissioner for the Lancet Commission on Non-Communicable Diseases and Poverty Ghana and a reviewer for multiple journals of global health. Her most recent efforts have been working as a surgical oncology consultant for a cancer center located in Lagos, Nigeria. Her long-term interests are to continue to foster and develop programs to improve cancer care and delivery in SSA through excellence in clinical care and research collaborations. Dr. Juliet, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very, very busy schedule to be with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited and looking forward to this. Yes, I know you're going to inspire a lot of people that are listening today. So thank you. Thank you. So, but before we dive into many questions about the life as a surgeon, I'd like to start out by you telling us about who Juliet was before becoming a doctor. If you can tell us a little bit about your upbringing, your background, and if you're the first doctor in your family. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Um, so I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria. I was um, My mom was a single mom with three kids just trying to make ends meet in kind of an area called Surulere, which is sort of an urban slum. And we had the fortunate opportunity to win a lottery. We played a U.S. visa lottery, and we actually won an opportunity uh, to come to the United States. And so we immigrated to the United States in 1997. Um, and then I actually went back to Nigeria in 2001 and then came back uh, to the United States in 2004. From there, I attended college um, at the University of Georgia. And really, that was sort of the time period where I started to explore, you know, really what my future was going to look like. I didn't really see representation in my family. But really, I started to really volunteer. I did some study abroad, and I really kind of got passionate about this idea of trying to give back to similar communities like the one that I was raised in. And so that was sort of how that journey started um, in terms of deciding on medical school. I think I was still a little bit undecided. You know, I struggled. I'd worked two jobs through college, you know, and uh, really thought this was going to be unreachable and too expensive for me. But 
Uh, luckily, I got a job working uh, for a congressman after college. And I think that was sort of the turning point in my life because, you know, when I was working for the congressman, I realized that there was a really big disconnect between policymakers and the people that actually take care of patients. So I knew I wanted to bridge a gap in clinical medicine as well as healthcare policy. And that was sort of what brought me to UCSD in San Diego. Oh, neat. Now, are you the first doctor in your family? I'm the second. My older sister um, is an emergency medicine physician, actually at uh, Houston Methodist Hospital in uh, Texas. So I'm the second physician in my family. That's really neat. And you said there's another sibling, right? Yes. I have uh, four sisters, actually. <laughs> so oh, okay. four sisters, wow. but I grew up with two of them. The other two were from my dad's side. So I grew up with my mom. With my mom, I had two sisters I grew up with. And on my dad's side, I have two sisters. So. <laughs> oh, okay. And do you have, did, when you guys came out here, did you have any family in the United States or was everybody back home? Not really. My mom didn't really have any family. We sort of got lucky where my mom, um, you know, the landlord actually of where we were living, my mom had not paid rent for about two years because she lost her job and couldn't really afford um, to really take care of us. And so uh, when we won the lottery, the landlord actually had his son actually lived in the United States and had a friend that was living in Chicago. So it was the friend that basically took us in to the studio apartment in the north side of Chicago. So it was like four people, actually, how many? Yeah, about five of us in this actual small apartment when we came to the United States. But we, yeah, we had no family. We didn't know anyone really when we came to Chicago. Wow. Your mom's courageous to do that too. And But she raised you guys so well. I mean, you got two doctors in the family now. <laughs> Did you ever consider another career aside from being a doctor? Or if you weren't, if you didn't go this route, would you? what would you have done? You know, that's a really great question. I've always had interest in philanthropy. Before I actually decided on going to medical school, I actually had signed up for the Peace Corps and I thought I was going to move to Cameroon. I was assigned to actually move to Cameroon. And I think something just sort of stopped me because I felt like I didn't really have a skill set to really be able to make an impact the way I wanted to make an impact. And so you know, I think if I wasn't a physician, I would probably still be in public health, you know, working for an NGO or, you know, WHO or the World Bank or something like that. But really, you know, the last couple of trips where I've been, now I have the skill set, you know, more than 20 years later. And, you know, I was just in Nigeria for a month, like doing surgeries. And it just felt so good that like, finally, it's taken me like, you know, more than 25 years, but I finally have something that I'm coming back with so much more than when we left. Well, that's amazing. I mean, you're, you're way ahead of me because I wanted to do that. And I'm always like, I'll get there. I'll get there where I can go back and serve internationally because it feels so good to be there. You feel like, you know, you're fulfilling your purpose of why you went to medical school, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, some of the patients I've gotten to really take care of are like, you know, one of them was from my mom's village and like the other one was from my dad's village. And like, you know, it's a very different experience The how well you're like just welcome. You speak the language. They don't really care where you're from. You know, there's not a lot of like, I need to check your status. Like they're just like, hey, doctor, close the door. I want to tell you something, you know, <laughs> you're trying to like end the visit. They're like, doctor, 
no, I'm just enjoying the gist. Let's just keep talking. And you're just like, <laughs> no, I, I have to, all my visits were like an hour, you know, compared to like being 20 minutes in the US just because the patients just want to talk to you like family. And so that has really been a very, you know, fortunate, you know, experience for me. Because as you know, you know, being a minority in medicine and especially in surgery can seem like a very, very cold place. You know, even the operating room, the feel of the operating room can feel quite cold. And so it was a very, you know, unique experience for me to be like in the OR, I'm sweating, the cases are hard in Nigeria, but the anesthesiologist is like, doctor, you keep going, you know, keep going, like we're support you. And it's just a very, very different vibe. Um, and something I feel like I've waited all my life to actually be able to do. So I feel very blessed to be able to do that. That's so interesting because I remember rotating through as a medical school student, that vibe you described, definitely. I would have thought now that you're a surgeon, it would be a little bit different. So you still get that same vibe then as a practicing surgeon. Yeah, unfortunately, it's still a quite a male dominated field as much as, you know, if you look at overall enrollment in medical schools and in residency, there's a lot more balance in terms of women. And even some residency programs have predominantly, you know, women or, you know, 60, 40 but the experience of being a black female in surgery, especially, is extremely challenging in many aspects, not just with working with patients. Sometimes it could be the staff. Sometimes, you, you know, there's some experiences that you have that only the like, you know, environmental services people that come or the people that are dropping the mail are the only ones in the hospital that can actually understand you. And so I think that is a very kind of unique aspect of, you know, despite being at this point in my life, I, I still, you know, was very surprised and impressed at the kind of reception and the kind of vibe that I got being in my own country, providing the same, you know, service that I would otherwise provide anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine how amazing that must have been. Oh, I knew your mom or I knew your dad or your grandma or grandpa. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I feel that's the way medicine should be, where the patient can come in and really connect with you like that. But exactly. it's not. <laughs> so you wear a lot of different hats since you do so much work internationally and here in the U.S. Um, I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to hear like what a typical day is like for you, if you have a typical day here in the United States and then how it is when you're working internationally. Yeah. So that's a great question. So I sort of see myself as an academic surgeon and a healthcare health services researcher within the context of global surgery. And so currently, you know, as a surgical oncology uh, fellow, I'm in my uh, senior year of surgical oncology fellowship, which is officially a PGY-9 year of training. You know, most of my days, you know, I start my days typically around five o'clock in the morning. I usually have conferences that I have to run. So I'll typically run, you know, our preoperative conference where we talk about all the cases for the week and I'll run the images for that. Usually that's uh, from 6.30 to 7.30. And then our cases start from 7.30 and they, they can go till, you know, probably sometimes three, four, five, depending on the difficulty. But sometimes they could be later, as late as 10 or 11, just depends on what the case is. So I'll typically, you know, round in the morning between 5.30 and uh, 6.15, run the conference 6.30 to 7.30, go to the operating room, come out of the operating round again and see all my patients. And then, you know, throughout the evenings, I'm sort of tightening things up. You know, as a fellow, you're always on call. So there's no 
the only time that you're not on call is the weekends that you're not on call. But during the weekday, you're always on call for your service. And so usually by like five or six o'clock, you start getting calls about things going on with patients or need to transfer patients or escalate to a higher level of care. And then throughout all of this, I'm still a healthcare researcher, right? And so I spend most of my after hours either writing papers, doing research. I am still very involved in Nigeria. And so I actually am I'm a surgical oncology consultant for Lakeshore. And so on Wednesdays, we have our tumor board that's virtual. And we discuss patients um, with cancer in Nigeria. And I review the images and kind of give recommendations. And so I've been doing that um, for the last three years. And then I still do some work in Ghana as well, too, and it also some work with the Lancet. So I'm very kind of busy, to say the least, but you have to find something that grounds you because the clinical grind constantly without a focus or vision can really lead to a certain level of burnout, physician burnout. And I, you know, it's like every time I go abroad and I'm on a project, research or whatever, I feel like I'm just rejuvenated every single time. So I think it's important that you find something, you know, that you're passionate about, you know, we're all passionate about taking care of patients, but also find something about taking care of patients, whether it's research, whether it's community engagement, uh, whether it's social media, anything to just sort of still be involved, but disconnect, uh, maybe use a different aspect of your skill set. Because I think that really is very remarkable when you can do that, because it keeps you kind of grounded in, in, in why you're doing what you're doing. I agree. You have to follow that passion and it makes it all worth it. So um, to keep you going, do you think you're like the way you described what a typical day is like for you? Well, how will it be different or will it be the same after you finish fellowship? That's a great question. So I, I think it's probably going to be similar, maybe not so much being on call, you know, every single night, you know, because now I would have fellows that can sort of take that call and other kind of junior you know, residents and interns and even medical students that are going to be part of my team. Um, so that may really change, but the complexity of what I'm having to do, the, you know, different tasks that I'm involved with, I don't think that's going to really go away. You know, one of my interests obviously is really trying to get grant funding to do more research in low and middle income countries. I feel like, you know, a lot of the guidelines about how we treat cancers are based on U.S. studies. And a lot of the U.S. studies are also really based on non-minority populations. And so when we're applying, you know, this treatment guideline that rarely doesn't even really apply to many of our communities here, and then we're taking that to a different country, I think it's a little bit far reaching. So one of my interest areas is really to try to sort of develop a curriculum to do more studies, you know, abroad. So I think, you know, from the clinical aspect, it may get a little bit easier because I'll have like a staff, but from a, you know, the multitasking and the different aspects of my skill set that I'm using, I think that's only going to get more complex. Can you describe, I know a lot of students, they're really interested in knowing like what exactly you do. So can you describe like some of your surgical cases, exactly what you're doing in the OR? Yeah. So that's a great question. I am interested in hepatopancreatical biliary or also known as HPV, which just means that you, out of sort of being a surgeon and surgical oncologist, you are focused on cancers of the biliary tract, the pancreas, as well as the liver. And so the types of cases that I am performing right now, at least on most common cases are doing a liver resection, so taking out 
portion of the liver for cancer. Um, sometimes the cancer is a metastasis from a different organ, like colorectal cancers. Sometimes it's a primary liver cancer. I also do a Whipple, which is a type of operation on the pancreas. There are different types of operations that you can do for cancer of the pancreas. Same thing with the bile duct. I do um, you know, biliary reconstruction. And those cases generally are kind of the longest cases, to be honest with you. And then we are trained to... Pr- do both open techniques as well as robotics. I've actually taken a really keen interest in using a robot. I think it's very fascinating that you get to use that and it improves your economics because you're sitting on a console and really controlling the instruments and it's really, really awesome. And then the other kind of aspects of my training, I do HIPEC, which is a type of procedure where we put heated chemotherapy into the abdomen for patients that have peritoneal disease from metastatic cancer. And actually, there have been studies that show that you can actually cure patients that have advanced disease using this technology. And then just in general, because I'm a surgical oncologist, I am trained to do breasts, so do mastectomies. I do sarcomas. I do uh, melanomas, you know, any type of soft tissue resection. I basically am trained, you know, to address most of the cancers that you may come across from head to toe, with the exception of brain cancers or brain tumors and ENT tumors. But I also do thyroids, parathyroids, adrenal gland tumors as well. You do everything. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's really neat because that provides a big surface to when you go abroad. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons why I chose surgical oncology. You know, I have interest specifically in HPB and you can certainly do a one-year HPB fellowship after general surgery. But I chose surgical oncology because I wanted to be double board certified to be able to treat a variety of malignancies that I will come across in um, different countries. So when I was in Nigeria recently, I did a lot of breast. Even if my practice in the United States may not be predominantly treating breast cancers. Wow, that's amazing. You're saving a lot of lives out there by doing that. Because if not otherwise, I don't know if these patients would have been able to have these services. So that's amazing. I, I love it. I love it. You're inspiring me. <laughs> What would you say is the best thing you like about your job and then like the thing that you like least about it? Ah, that's a great question. I don't have one thing that I lo- I just I love my job so much. I think, you know, I, I don't know if I was born a surgeon, but I was definitely made a surgeon. I think just the fact that I can heal with my hands is so fascinating. You know, there's nothing more satisfying by coming to the recovery area and telling a patient, like, we got all your cancer out. And these are patients that have been on chemotherapy and radiation and have gone through so much once they've had a cancer diagnosis. And so I just love the art of healing with my hands. I feel like it is so rewarding. You know, I do a lot of health policy and all this stuff. You know, I tell people all the time, I may not be able to change the entire healthcare system in Nigeria, but man, I can help a lot of people, you know. I am still a surgeon with a knife, without a robot or anything, I can still help people. And so I would say that's the part that I find very rewarding for surgery is that, you know, a lot of other specialties sometimes, and and I know that disparities impact surgery as well. You know, a lot of specialties that depend on a lot of 
kind of socioeconomic constructs that predisposes to conditions. So diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease. And a lot of it also requires, you know, some aspect of patients' lifestyles changing. You know, if you're a smoker or, you know, if you're trying to get into a program to manage COPD. But the thing is, the, the ballpark becomes even once you have a surgical problem, right? Because it doesn't matter whether or not you were super, you know, it helps me if you're complying with your diabetes meds or it helps me if you stop smoking. But if you need to go to the operating room, we go to the operating room. And you know, regardless of what the situation is, we have the incredible ability in the United States to salvage and to take care of very, very sick people. And I've taken care of people with cancers up until like 90s. The oldest person I've operated on is 104. So, and the person went home a couple of days later and he's like golfing, right? And so you really meet people at very critical times but yet you're still able to offer something that can actually improve their quality of life. And so that's the part that I really love about being a surgeon. The other aspects that are I love the least, the training is very challenging. You have to almost do the impossible to to get to this point. It's still very conservative. You know, it's it's sort of in some aspects, it feels like it's selective in terms of who gets to stay in, fit in, and progress. And surgery is one of those specialties that has one of the highest attrition rates of all specialties. In fact, I think that average attrition is about 25% for all comers. Um, for minorities, is about 40%. And in some places and some programs, it's even higher than that. And there's a lot of, you know, factors that go into it, but you can imagine as an underrepresented minority, you only make up less than 0.1% of the, you know, surgical trainees, but yet you're leaving at a higher rate than anybody else. And so that would be the one thing that I, you know, again, there's a lot of things that are actually impacting that, but that's the most challenging aspects of being, you know, a, a female surgeon. You know, you sit here, you know, I'm nine years out. I'm probably going to finish next year. I'll get a job. But there's so many people. I, every day I feel like I'm talking to someone that's facing attrition or about to attrition or about to be fired or not renewed or placed on remediation, probation, suspended, whatever. And these are all very capable people. Some of these people are people we knew as medical students, right? That excelled in medical school. So there's something about the pipeline that is creating a bottleneck for the transition between getting into medical school, staying in medical school, and then actually being successful in finishing the surgical training. That sounds like it's good that you're focusing focusing on it right now because you are in academia that it you know you're able to observe from a different perspective so that way we can increase those numbers because I feel like a lot of actually most of the students that we reach out to and talk to most of them are into surgery most of them will say oh I would love to be a surgeon I would love to be a surgeon but there's something there that happens number one obviously just applying to medical school which is why we're doing this because we want to increase that number but then on the other hand it's even once they get a medical school beyond that with, with with what you're seeing as well. So very interesting, but I'm glad you're in that place because this is where you can make an impact. <laughs> if we didn't have you, who would do it? <laughs> For sure. And I think that part of it is also changing the environment. You know, we can get more people into these programs 
and match more people. And actually the numbers of URIMs that are applying into surgical training is actually steadily increasing over the last couple of years. And actually the number that are even, even to the point of being offered interviews but we're finding bottlenecks from the interview to the matching process, or if they've matched to the successful finishing process. So, so there's something about the environment that needs to kind of improve because it's just not okay to, you know, admit a bunch of people, one or two or three people, and they don't feel like they fit in. They don't feel like they're part of the culture. They're not giving the same level of respect. They're not allowed to participate in activities like other residents. Like people feel this stuff when they end up in these programs being the one, two, or three minority person. So I think the part of the system is changing the culture to make it not like I am, you know, oh my goodness, I have to say that I have a minority, but like, we really welcome this. We want to make this a safe environment for you. We know it's going to be more difficult for you, period. You know, and I think that's a strategy that some program directors use where they have open office hours, you know, to have opportunities for minorities to talk about their experiences. I think that can be quite effective in trying to create a safe space, but we need more of that. Okay. I know I'm looking at the time too for you so to make sure that um, you get to your next meeting. So I'll ask you the final question. If you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, say your high school self or college self, what advice would you give yourself? And then what advice would you give to the younger people today that are thinking about pursuing a career in medicine? I would say be more confident, you know, be more assertive, you know, know what you want. Um, I feel like a lot of us just sort of, especially when you don't have a lot of role models, we just are like, oh, thank you for having me. You know, like you're just happy that someone's interested in you, right? Because you're not used to like, having all those resources, right? I didn't go to a fancy magnet school. I didn't have, you know, this huge kind of support network, but I, I wish that I was a little bit more confident, you know, in how I approached life and more assertive about the things that I wanted to do. You know, I still remember showing up for some medical school interviews and they would ask me questions and I would look at the people interviewing with me and I would ask them, why did you guys even offer me an interview? And that's like, you know, I was just, I didn't really even recognize what skill and value that I thought I could bring. And, you know, looking now at me, you know, interviewing for jobs and applying for jobs, I'm more assertive. I know what works for me. I know what doesn't work for me. I am not so, you know, I need to just get anywhere. I'm, I'm more kind of focused on picking the right environments for myself. And if you look across, you know, I've done some medical school interviews and even interviewed residents, you can tell the difference in the confidence level in the people that have had support or training or practice with interviewing and the people that are just kind of like, yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm glad that you guys think I'm smart, but I still don't really know why I got here. And I think that you should just know that you're valuable. If you get an interview somewhere, Know that you have something that you can bring to the table. Be assertive about that. Be confident in what you have to offer. I think that would be the one advice that I would give to anyone that is considering this career path. Don't be scared. Don't think that you don't belong there because you don't see other people like you. And and that's really, you know, the the surviving thing for me because I've been in training for, you know, nine years. I mean, at Hopkins, I'm the first black female in the history of Johns Hopkins that they've ever trained in surgical oncology, despite the fact that 
Hopkins has a long-standing history of training. It's the first surgical residency program in the United States. Or when I was a resident, I was like the third person black female to have graduated from the residency program. Like you're always going to feel, and I'm sure when I get my faculty position, being a black female Nigerian doing global surgery and financing and all of this stuff and DEI, you're you're not going to find people like you or a person that has everything like that. But just know that you have a lot to offer and you have a lot to bring to the table. So don't lose your confidence because you walk into the room and you're like, oh, there's no one like me. So like, I must not really fit in here. Know that, man, there's a lot of people that want things about you and that's why you're here. So that would be one advice that I would give to anyone considering this career path. So basically get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. Right? And I would say in surgery specifically, I think it's pretty much across all of, as you start medical school on forward, eventually, hopefully that'll change. But especially in surgery, just get comfortable being uncomfortable and really, you know, believing that you belong there is the thing I think is what you're you're trying to come across. And I think it's important for the people who are listening today to hear it from you because, I mean, you're doing so much, you're so successful, but sometimes people just see the achievements but they don't see everything that you've gone through, like your upbringing that you were talking about, you know, how hard it was, the struggle of getting there to to medical school, number one, right? (laughs) And then getting through medical school and all the stuff that goes on. So these are layers and layers and layers. Usually people just see what's above water, not what's below. Okay, so thank you so much, Julia, for sharing those things. Is there any one other thing that you'd like to share that maybe can empower some students? Yeah, I would say stay inspired, you know, stay inspired. You're going to have some, you know, good days and bad days, but don't turn every day into a bad day. End every day with a certain level of energy and resilience. Know that you have gotten here for a reason. And um, I'm looking forward to the next, you know, couple of years of my career. I mean, I already feel like it's changed so much since I started as an intern. I mean, I there's a lot more minorities um, that I see applying into surgery. There's a lot more women in surgery. I mean, I think the culture is changing. And so don't be nervous. Don't be scared. You can have a great life in surgery if that's what you want to do. And I think just, you know, stay inspired. Stay true to yourself. I kind of said it better. Thank you all for checking us out today. I hope that you were inspired by Dr. Juliet today as much as I was. See you next time. <laughs>